0: cultural movements have been super influential in positioning these countries as enviable destinations for our students to consider studying abroad in because uh, largely they generate awareness. You know, you want to go somewhere where you have some sort of a connection.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of World Stride's inaugural podcast, Changing Lives Through Education Abroad a weekly series of conversations with international education's most interesting thought leaders, as well as discussions on emerging trends, best practices, and innovation happening in our field. I'm your host, Zach McInnes, Senior Director of Campus Partnerships with Worldstrides, and I am so excited for this week's episode. Today, we dive deep into a topic that fuses two passions of mine, the dynamic world of pop culture with that certain high-impact practice of study abroad that we all know and love. Pop culture, with its ever-evolving nature, has always shaped the dreams and decisions of young minds. And today, we're about to discover how it influences students' decision-making process when it comes to education abroad. From Mary Kate and Ashley Olson's 1999 blockbuster, well, blockbuster to me anyway, Passport to Paris, To the k-pop and j-pop revolution of today we'll discuss the intersection of pop culture and study abroad joining us in this captivating conversation is someone who's had a front row seat to both of these worlds my friend dr kyle Rausch, the executive director of the study abroad office at the university of illinois chicago kyle's unique blend of being a pop culture enthusiast and renowned expert in international education provides him with invaluable insights into our topic today. This should be a fun episode, folks, to say the very least. I have been lucky to know Kyle for years now, and he never ceases to inspire me by his tireless commitment to student success and to giving back to our field. Kyle's energy and efforts, to me, seem to know no bounds. I will admit, though, that talking to Kyle usually makes me feel a little bit like a slacker in comparison. We have a thrilling lineup of questions for Kyle today, where we'll explore the allure of global phenomena like K-pop and J-pop, the portrayal of destinations in media, the role of pop culture in bridging cross-cultural understanding, and so much more. By the end of this episode, you might even see your favorite movies, songs, and social media trends in a completely new light. So without further ado, let's get started. Stay tuned, everyone.
0: You do not want to miss this
1: episode. Dr. Kyle Rife, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here.
0: Yeah, thanks so much, Zach. It's been uh, exciting to prepare for this and to get to blend two of my absolute favorite topics in this world, so really excited for this conversation. I'm so excited as well. Could you start by giving us an
1: overview of your professional experience in education abroad and your personal
0: experience as a pop culture enthusiast? Absolutely. So in terms of my career in international education, I've been working in education abroad for 17 years now, and actually this year marks my 20th anniversary since the first time I studied abroad as a high school student, which I think will come up throughout our conversation. I've worked at four different uh, universities and throughout each of those roles have had a big focus on supporting faculty and developing faculty-directed programs. So that's an area of the field I really enjoy working on. But also as a first-generation college student myself, a lot of my academic interests revolve around this idea of how to increase access to education abroad for underrepresented students. So it's a little bit about me, but I really enjoy being at UIC right now because we have great students from diverse backgrounds. So I really get to put a lot of the the theory of what I've I've looked at over the years into practice at a great institution.
1: Terrific, Kyle. Thank you for that introduction. In order to give our listeners a bit of context today, could you please share
0: a bit about the education abroad ecosystem at UIC? Absolutely. So we are an MSI, a minority-serving institution. Actually, I just learned from our incoming class this year, over 56% of first-year students are Pell-eligible. Wow. And so with those two factors in mind, I think a lot of our colleagues listening in probably understand some of the challenges that we're presented with as we try and position education abroad on our campus. That being said, we don't have an interest problem. So uh, I was at all sorts of events these past uh, first few weeks of class and a lot of first-year students coming up so it's more figuring out how to connect them to resources that can help them make this a reality. Prior to COVID we were sending about 250 students abroad annually. We're at an institution though of over 34,000 students so that is a drop in the bucket but I'm excited to say that as we have um, rebounded from COVID we have sent more students abroad than we did prior so just this past year we crossed the 300 mark so Looks like some of our work's paying off, so we just need to keep on keep on doing the good work. You know, you identify as a scholar
1: practitioner. What topics are closest to your professional heart and how does that frame your work?
0: So as I mentioned in my intro, uh, faculty-directed programs ha- have always been, held a special place in my heart. Um, first, because I am a product of them. So my program in high school I participated on was a program in which my high school French teacher wrote a small grant to take a group of us to a small island off the west coast of France, which was our sister city. This was long before I knew what a faculty-directed program was, but uh, fast forward to college, I participated in two more programs led by my French professor. And for me, it was, again, as a first-generation student, such a, a great opportunity to get to know a faculty member outside the confines of a classroom. I mean, you're sharing meals with these individuals there suggesting museums and showing you what their passions and interests are. So uh, apart from all the incredible things I was getting to see and do in Paris or in France, I was also building uh, a professional relationship with, with faculty. And so now, and as an administrator, it's a real pleasure to, to take these awesome ideas our faculty have and wrangle them into a manageable faculty-directed study abroad program. Another area of interest, of course, is the increasing access for underrepresented students. That really comes from my work at the public institutions where I've been. So I've been at Florida State, Arizona State, now UIC, and all three of those institutions do serve uh, a high proportion of underrepresented students. And I think as we um, keep moving forward in this globalized society, if we don't pay attention to who is getting these opportunities, then we're just gonna be exacerbating the inequities that exist.
1: You know you and i share i think that commitment to public institutions and and, and believe deeply in the power of, of public institutions in particular to help move the dial and, and create change here in the united states so thanks for sharing that yep we as international educators often have the pulse on trends through our students they help keep us young or at least young at heart don't they the k-pop and j-pop phenomena are just a few examples could you please expand on how they have encouraged students to study Korean and Japanese language and influence to Korea and Japan as enviable destinations for North American study abroad students?
0: Absolutely. But first, I realized I forgot uh, an important part of my introduction, and that is where does the pop culture element come in for me? So I'll start there and then segue into to answering that. So for me, my interest in pop culture has really been around my entire life. I have a very vivid memory of being given um, a record player for my fifth birthday. And along with that record player, my my parents' old albums. And one album that stands out to me was uh, from ABBA. So of course, the Swedish masterminds who I think are really to thank for a lot of modern day pop music. So from a very early age, pop music had a pivotal role to play in my life. And that went on uh, to grow because my family um, all had their own musical taste. So our household was one just that it was always uh, spinning the latest, you know, pop music. We had MTV on all the time. So it really was something that was always present in my life. And then I remember in middle school, I started to meet friends who were into Japanese anime and manga. I got really into that, and this was my first introduction to a non-Western culture, I guess we could say, and I was fascinated by the different art styles, you know, growing up in Florida, where I grew up, Disney was, was king, so to see something incredibly different from what, you know, we had grown up with was really inspiring to me. And then Harry Potter, that that's always been uh, an important character and persona for me too, and knowing that, um, you know, that novel and and everything that goes with it came from Britain. So starting to realize that as great uh, of media as we have coming out of the United States, there are other countries and cultures producing really fascinating stuff. So as I look back, I can really see uh, this gelling together to to merge my two interests. Fascinating now that I have that, that insight to see this happening for the students we serve, this younger generation, and as you mentioned with the J-pop and K-pop phenomena. So, in the case of K-pop, it's, it's really interesting to consider. I, I think it's a fantastic example of a country that has strategically leveraged popular culture and media as an export to improve the country's image on the world market. In fact, The Ministry of Culture in South Korea has a special department now that is responsible for the development of K-pop. I don't know if the U.S. would ever do that, but I would be happy to be the Minister of Pop Culture here in the U.S., so I'll just put that plug out. But I think that shows um, how in tune they are to, um, you know, promoting their country, their culture on the global stage. And, um, you know, as I was prepping for our talk today, I I was just curious, uh, economically speaking, what has the impact been for South Korea? And according to data from the Korea Creative Content Agency, the export value of K-populated products and services increased from about $40 in 2003 Mm -hmm. to over, are you ready? $5 billion in 2018. So... Clearly, there is um, a huge market for this kind of media. And then with J-pop, I feel like J-pop has been around for a long time, Um, not just music, but again, going back to this idea of anime, manga, and video games, you know, Nintendo, thinking about the prevalence of that starting in the 80s. So these cultural movements have been super influential in positioning these countries as enviable destinations for our students to consider studying abroad in because uh, largely they generate awareness, you know, you want to go somewhere where you have some sort of a connection. And so I think as we think about primary and secondary school, I don't know about you, Zach, but I I think I only had one unit here and there about non-Western cultures and everything else was about, you know, Western Europe. So naturally, we're going to be inclined to to think about traveling to those countries because that's where our basis of knowledge is is coming from.
1: You know, I've just been so struck by um, you know talking to students. Really, the past I would say two years after COVID, when things like study abroad fairs became a thing once again, is it, is just this interest in South Korea and Japan. It's unlike anything I've ever seen before. And you know, at least I could speak for those of us here at who We're here for it. We're we're thrilled to welcome students to Asia. Uh, I'm sure you're seeing it at at UIC as well.
0: Absolutely. In fact,
1: we uh,
0: are launching a new faculty-directed program next summer with a faculty member from our Global Asian Studies Department, which is, uh, I think, I need to look up the title. I think it's something like uh, POW, BAM, ZAP, uh, Comics and Anime in Tokyo, Japan. So, yeah, and and we had the flyer out at our fair two weeks ago and all copies were taken. So I think this one's going to be a successful program. You
1: know, in our field, we can agree that the most important thing that we can do is get our students abroad, right? Uh, To do that, sometimes we have to be creative and meet students where they are. What are some ideas for how international educators can use pop culture as a tool to spark interest in language learning, study abroad, and perhaps in non-traditional locations?
0: You know, by tapping into things that are relevant to our students' lives, that they're interested in, such as music, TV, and film and social media, it really can be used as an entree to position study abroad as something that's interesting and relevant to them. You know, it's incumbent upon us to help make those connections for them. So for instance, why is it that K-pop has taken the world by storm? That in and of itself makes for a very interesting academic question because there are many connections across disciplines that can be made you know, including economic, political, sociological, and historical lines of inquiry. So to me, it, it just makes, it's, it's good common sense with, with anything. You have to meet people where they're at. If, if you don't understand how something is relevant to you or it doesn't speak to your interest, why on earth are you going to sign up for something, let alone spend thousands of dollars to participate?
1: You know, on a related note, while we may be impartial about how it is that students make their way into our offices, We want them to make informed decisions about study abroad. How can we give guidance while encouraging enthusiasm at the same time?
0: So I don't think these are mutually exclusive. I I often hear study abroad advisors make what I consider judgmental statements about locations where students want to go or programs they're selecting, and it really discourages me. Um, I, I just feel, shouldn't we be celebrating whatever it is that brings a student to our office? Even if it isn't as academic, maybe, as, as we would prefer it to be, I think you can scaffold an experience and use that interest they have to lead them to, to the academic underpinnings that, it, that you're hoping to expose students to. And it reminds me, uh, this year I was fortunate to participate in a, a Fulbright seminar in Taiwan. And we were at a lunch uh, hosted by a university partner, and some of my peers who had, were also on the seminar were scholars in Asian studies. And they were talking about basically this idea that students who go to, to Asia are, I don't know, more, more driven or they're, they're gonna have a more impactful experience. And as a first-generation student who chose to study in Paris, I was really taken aback and upset by those comments because who is anyone else to tell me how transformational my time in Paris was at that particular moment in my life You know, growing up in a rural northwest Florida town, the first in my family to go to college. Going on a plane, you know, without my parents to a foreign country where the language was different was an incredibly challenging and rewarding experience. That helped me get to the point then where I felt confident to go to a vastly different culture, such as in China or Taiwan. So I really think we as educators need to be careful about the language we're using. And we need to, again, meet our students where, where they're at and celebrate whatever it is that, that is bringing them to the study abroad table.
1: I actually love what you just said there, Kyle. You know, I think there's oftentimes a temptation in our field to pit locations against one another. You know, like Latin America somehow being better than Spain or a smaller city in Italy being somehow better than Florence. Like, and so I think that that's, that's really impactful. Like the right location for the right student can be a lot of different things, can't it?
0: Yeah. And I think we we maybe don't think about the objectives of a program uh, as much as we should. So I I know as international educators, we often talk about study abroad as a vehicle to increase intercultural competency development. And certainly that's something I hope for on all of the programs we run. But that, that doesn't need to be the only or be all end all component of a program. You know, if a faculty member wants to take students to do research and then the lab, the CERN lab in Switzerland. Yes, we, it would be great if they're getting intercultural competency exposure, but I'm sure that course's made objectives are something very different. And as long as that program is filling those objectives, then it's a success. So yeah, I think just going back to basics and backward design and, and program design can really help us make sure we have a variety of programs in our portfolio that speak to every student's interest.
1: We know the depictions of the world and its people are not always accurate in the media or in pop culture. Are there any common misconceptions about studying abroad propagated by pop culture that you'd like to
0: highlight? Oh yeah, there's there's a ton, right? So I think just like individuals abroad think American college students do nothing but party and drink excessively because of the movies they see about American college students, so too do our students have stereotypes of other countries and cultures in their minds uh, when they're traveling abroad. And I'm probably dating myself here. You mentioned Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen, so I'm just going to follow a trend. But I think about how many millennials probably remember the Lizzie McGuire movie. Oh, no, yes. <laughs> Formative. Well, <laughs> when Hilary Duff's character traveled to Italy and experienced all those typical tropes of a young American traveling to Europe for the first time. I mean, after watching that, who among us didn't want to travel to Italy and hop on a moped with a handsome Italian man, right? <laughs> So these romanticized portrayals of what it's like to be abroad as a young person can set our students up for some superficial expectations of what the experience will be like. So sometimes then when they encounter the realities of what it is to be in a a different culture, it might lead to greater feelings of being, you know, shocked or disappointed. And again, thinking of my own experience, the first time I visited Rome, I was a college student. Uh, I hope I'm not going to offend anyone here, but it was a huge letdown to me. One, I did not meet some handsome Italian man on a moped. But two, I just remember it being dirtier than the movies had portrayed it as, and dare I say, a little bit sketchy, and, you know, the prevalence of pickpockets. So all things that I know now are indicative of any major city. high Chicago. But <laughs> it's 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 something, again, that my focus on the media that that I was watching at the time really hadn't kind of set me up for realistic expectations.
1: You know, on that same vein, we know that some destinations are legendary, timeless, or, or simply iconic. And in the spirit of today's topic, how does the portrayal of certain cities or countries in popular media affect their popularity as study abroad destinations?
0: What constitutes a destination as being legendary, timeless, or iconic is really a matter of perspective in one's cultural frame of reference. As, as I mentioned earlier, in primary education, Western society is positioned as the be all end all. I mean, every year you have multiple weeks of units focused on countries like England, France, and I can think back to my high school experience in history. It was one week on all of Asia, not just like one country, but Asia writ large. And so, of course, when we then get to college and are expecting students to choose where they wanna go, if they have very little frame of reference for what Asia is or represents or the countries within, it, it just makes so much sense to me that they're they're not naturally gonna be trying to choose that.
1: You know, I remember growing up in Texas um, in school, we had a year on Texas history and a year on world history, <laughs> which for all intents and purposes means European history, as you mentioned. So, you know, you're making me think about how, you know, we need to globalize that K through 12 curriculum too. You know, in what ways can pop culture be used as an educational tool to promote cross-cultural understanding and global awareness for college students?
0: So I was a language major in college and I studied French since middle school. And for me, my, my professors who used pop culture to help with language learning were onto something because it, again, it made it relevant to me. Knowing I liked music, the ability to go discover new French pop artists and download their CD and start to listen to the words. And I would have, you know, pulled up on my screen, the the French lyrics, the English translations, and it it was a fun way to, to do French homework, right? So I think educators can, can rely on media and, and popular media as a way to pull in their students and get them excited about content. You know, how, how many of us have had those four language textbooks that just give us conjugation tables and list of, of words we, you know, might not actually really need to use? Uh, a good example is when I was studying in France, I needed to get a haircut and I thought, oh shoot, no one ever told me the vocabulary for getting a haircut. You know, I could talk about, I don't know, <laughs> ordering food at a restaurant, which was useful, but there are a lot of different things in one's life that, that would be maybe more relevant, um, if we just took time to actually talk about those, as opposed to what academics think is, is academically meritorious.
1: I love that point there. You know, you're, you're reminding me of when I was first learning Spanish. You know, in college, and I was studying abroad in Lima, Peru, and I, I realized that just watching television with the subtitles on could be so impactful in in helping me figure out how people talk on a day-to-day basis. Right. So the power of television, right, when it comes to language learning, I think can't be underestimated.
0: Yeah, my grandmother on my mom's side was from France, and she met my grandfather when he was in the Air Force um, and moved to the States not knowing any English. And I remember one, one day realizing this, and I asked her, Grandma, you speak you know English very well. How did you learn it? And she laughed and said, I watched American soap operas every day while your grandpa was at work. So, yeah, <laughs> it, it it's something... Uh, Finding things that that people enjoy interacting with that that make the learning process uh, fun, which is something that I think we all know about study abroad, but might sometimes be afraid to talk about. Study abroad is fun, and it should be, and we should celebrate that. And why do we sometimes hear students say, yeah, studying abroad seems easier? Because we're making the learning more relevant and accessible to them in a way that is fun. So again, I don't think we should shy away from that. I think we should embrace it more. Kyle, you and I are both proud millennials, right? Um,
1: and as as the years go by, we can find ourselves at more of a distance from our students and the media they take in on a daily basis. How can we stay up to date and
0: ahead of the curve of trends? So this is what peer advisors are for. <laughs> so student <laughs> staff. Um, you know, hopefully wherever our, our colleagues who are listening might work, they they do have access to great student staff. But really taking the time to engage with them and be curious, you know, ask them, what is it, you know, what concerts are you going to? Uh, what are you doing for fun? Rather than trying to say, you know, I'm I'm not as young as them, I, I just will never understand. If you actually take time to get to learn what their interests are, they're they excited to share. And so for me, you know, pop music just happens to be a massive hobby. So I at least feel like I keep a, a footing in that space. But I am not a TikTok person, nor do I have any plans to download that app. So I know that for our students, this is a really important space to be in. So I rely on my student staff to to teach me about the things I need to know about that and to run with our our TikTok presence. Um, Additionally, you know, there's no shortage of podcasts like this one and other fun ways. So even if you don't want to, you know, go out and watch the latest movies or listen to the latest pop songs, Um, There are all sort of things out there that can keep you in the know from a pop culture perspective.
1: We've touched on this a bit earlier in our conversation today, um, but I just want to make sure there's nothing that we've missed. Um, How have global events or pop culture movements like K-pop's global rise, Hollywood blockbusters, or even international sporting events impacted trends in study abroad?
0: Building off what we talked about earlier with J-pop and K-pop, for me... The next big thing that, that we need to be looking at in this space is TikTok. So I just had my best friend, um, get back from Italy. He took his first trip over to Italy and he was telling me about all these awesome restaurants he went to and little known secrets in the, the cities. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, where did you find all these things? This is awesome. And he's like, TikTok. And he started showing me these videos of influencers in Italy saying you know hey this is the best gelato spot in rome um not everyone knows about it yet make sure you get here and i realize how powerful of a tool that really is so i think we've all better watch the social media space because that's going to be a driver for where our students uh are interested in going and more importantly how they're making decisions
1: you know i have to confess that i, I myself am a TikToker. I'm a longtime lurker, but a seldom poster. Um, <laughs> but it was really this summer, you know, when I had the opportunity to spend some time in Europe that I really discovered the power of TikTok when it comes to planning travel. Like in the past, I'd, I had used TikTok to res- look at recipes, um, but now I discovered I can look at find the best restaurants in Bucharest. So I couldn't agree more. I- I'm curious, you know,
0: what you've heard from from students uh, at UIC about social media. It's just that whenever I say, like, how did you, you know, why did you choose this program? Or how did you find out about whatever it is that might have been a city? It always comes back to TikTok. And my fiance has a 17-year-old sister. And whenever she visits, she is, that's all she's on, TikTok. And I'm like, what are you watching? Sometimes it'll be makeup tutorials. Sometimes it'll be, she's really into K-pop. So she'll show me like this new K-pop video that came out. So this is their window to the world. And in some ways it makes me think back to my own adolescence because the internet was really coming into its own when I was growing up. And I remember being on the the dark interwebs looking for some French pop star that I couldn't get their CD here in the States, you know, like I've got to listen to this. And it was really exciting. It felt like, you know, I can't travel abroad yet, but I'm I can get connected on a, a global scale. And I think our students this is, this is the world they were born into. They haven't known anything else. So they see this just as an extension of their, their lives domestically. They're able to power up an app and be connected to the world with the push of a button.
1: How can students differentiate between genuine cultural learning experiences and those that are perhaps just trendy due to pop culture? And as a, as a follow-up to that, what is our role as educators in helping them make this distinction?
0: So... Just because something's trendy doesn't mean it can't be a genuine cultural experience. So I I really would contest that. It's something that frustrates me about working in academia because I think many academics look down on pop culture or see it as something lesser. But I I don't know. It'd be interesting if there was some way to kind of look back in time. But, you know, Beethoven, wasn't he at one time pop culture? (laughs) And now we herald him as this big, you know, I don't know, Ex- exemplar of, of of the height of music. Uh, I'm I, I have high hopes that one day my beloved Britney Spears will be just as important as Beethoven was to the history of music. And I know people listening are like cringing right now, but I think it's all a matter of time and generational perspective. and And so, yeah, I, I just think that that question doesn't hold value to me. Sorry. From Beethoven to Britney. <laughs> From Beethoven to Britney. Exactly.
1: <laughs> uh, pop culture has a way of bringing people together. Uh, Share with us, please, an example of when a particular pop culture phenomenon created a special bond for you
0: or for your students. So one of my first professional gigs outside of college was uh, getting to go as an assistant on the faculty-directed program I did as a student, so it was just incredibly rewarding in a full circle moment. But the year that I got to do that was the year in which Harry Potter's last movie was released. So. Um, I was with a group of students, we were in Paris, and it was the, I think it was the second to last day or last day of the program. So we all booked tickets and went to the premiere in Paris of the, the Harry Potter, you know, the final movie. And not only was it memorable for us to have that experience together for this profound piece of culture that we had all grown up with, but to be in an international context and see the global reach that, that we knew yeah. but to be a part of it in that way was really a special moment.
1: If you could have dinner anywhere in the world with any pop culture icon, who
0: would you be sitting down with and where? Well, I think it's really fitting we are talking about this topic today because we just so happen to be speaking on a day when one of my all-time favorite pop culture icons has released her new album, Miss Kylie Minogue. So I'd have to go with her. I, I think she's super fascinating as a, someone who's been in the business for five decades and has managed to stay relevant in a very ageist industry. And what further interests me about her career is that in every other country, she is routinely selling out stadiums and arenas, yet here in the States, she's known for one, maybe two songs. And I think the international, you know, marketing side of what, what is the reason for that? What What are there cultural underpinnings that, that we can examine to consider why this is, is really fascinating. So I think in another life, a career for me would have been this localization of pop stars, like, all right, let's take this, you know, Swedish girl, and she wants to break into the, the U.S. How are we going to make that happen? That would have been a fun job.
1: That's really interesting. Y- you know, I've been, we've been talking about how students are influenced by pop pop culture. But I'm curious, you know, your thoughts on how we as educators can be influenced by pop culture and, and international education planners. I was having some conversations earlier in the week about faculty directed programs in Europe in 2024 and how we're now having a plan around the Olympics in Paris but also Taylor Swift's era tours as it goes to Europe. Has that come up in your work at all?
0: Uh, the Olympics definitely have. I had not I, I'm just going to confess, I'm not a Swifty, so I wasn't aware. But I now, am, I confess. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but now I will definitely be thinking how really? that might impact our, our programs. Um, but no, I, I think it's exciting um, because being the pop culture aficionado that I am, when I studied abroad, Rihanna was in her Umbrella era and she performed at the O2 in London. And you know I had my ticket and I was there at oh, the concert. Yeah. Um, so again, even though Taylor is an American artist, I still think it's a, if students want to go, what an incredible experience because they potentially will meet locals and get to talk about why her music has been so powerful in their culture versus ours. So, yeah, I'm, I'm all for it as long as we can uh, keep prices down for programs. Absolutely.
1: <laughs> I was talking to some students earlier in the week, and um, you know they're planning to study abroad in the spring and extend into the summer. And they've already made plans to go to Warsaw uh, to see Taylor Swift perform in Warsaw. And and I was just thinking like, you know, you probably would never have gone to Poland if it wasn't for Taylor Swift. (laughs) Exactly.
0: Yeah, I I also, um, I don't know if you know the artist Mika, but he's really big in, in Europe. And when I was studying in Paris, he threw a surprise concert at a chateau just outside of Paris, so I got to go to a chateau and see one of my favorite artists perform. It was, you just, there are these memorable experiences that you can't replicate, you know?
1: How cool is that? Uh, You know, in education abroad, we we talk about language a lot. And I know you're a a, a French language learner yourself, Kyle, and I've studied Spanish for many years. Uh, and, And language acquisition is a big part of intercultural exchange, of course. It also matters a great deal how we talk about our programs and how we share them with students in terms of creating a sense of welcome and possibility. On the topic of language, pop culture has created countless iconic
0: catchphrases. What's your all-time favorite and why? So again, probably because uh, it's today, but I'm gonna go with, padam. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) If you know, you know, right? (laughs) Indeed. Um, And
1: Kyle, as we begin to wrap up here, I just have a few more questions for you. What's the next big
0: thing in study abroad? Technology. Education is taking an incredibly slow time to embrace technology, but between artificial intelligence, uh, virtual reality, and the innovative programming that's coming out of the ed tech spaces, I think our field's going to be forced to reckon with it, and we can choose to keep resisting it or embrace it.
1: And lastly, Dr. Ralph, I just have one more question for you. As you think about
0: studying abroad in 2024, what makes you hopeful? Our new first-year students make me hopeful. Um, again, I'm coming off the heels of three weeks. Uh, UIC does a week's welcome, not just a week. So of uh, lots of events where I got to talk with many new first-year students, and I was struck by how engaged they were asking thoughtful questions. They, they ha- they've already been thinking about this, and maybe it's because of the pandemic and the fact that many of them Uh, you know, we're not in the traditional school setting for a lot of their formative years. I don't know, but that excites me that the interest is there. But also, I think that that they're more accepting of other ways of life than than other generations happen. I'm really hopeful that these younger generations are going to lead the change that we've been, many of us have been so long wanting. So they uh, even, you know, at UIC, I, I feel like I'm educated almost on a weekly basis about how students want to identify and proper vocabulary to be using, and I'm someone who tries to keep up with this, so yeah, they give me a lot of hope. Well, I can't
1: imagine a better place to end things than right there. After we're done here, Kyle, I'm going to go to Spotify and start listening to Kylie, so thank you for that, uh, and I just want to thank you for, for taking the time to share your
0: expertise um, with
1: us today. This has been such a fun conversation.
0: Absolutely, Zach. It's something that I've thought about for a long time. So just to have the opportunity to kind of take my thoughts and, and try and articulate them was a good exercise. And so who knows, maybe you'll you'll see a, a journal article or conference session out of this. I love it and I'll look forward to it. <laughs>
1: uh, and to our listeners, thank you for joining us for this episode of Changing Lives Through Education Abroad. I'm your host, Zach McInnes, and please make sure to join us next week as we continue to explore topics around international education and exchange. Thank you to my spectacular World's Rights colleagues, Lindsay Kelchner and Sarah Kachuba, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Please subscribe to Changing Lives Through Education Abroad on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and share with your friends and colleagues. Let's create life-changing moments together.